Welcome to the September Extra Jodcast. And in the spirit of our Extra Jodcast, we're going to give you something to think about while the show is going on. Now, the circumference of the Earth is approximately 40,000 kilometers. But if we were to make a circle of wire around the Earth that's only 10 meters longer than the circumference of the Earth, could a flea or a rabbit or even a man creep under it? So that's 40,000 kilometers and 10 meters. Have a think. The answers after... The Jodcast. Giving you one of your five a day. With David Alt, Stuart Lowe, Tim O'Brien and Nick Rattenbury. The Jodcast. September Extra Issue. Hello and welcome to the September Extra issue of the Jodcast. I'm down here in Birmingham and up in Manchester we got Stuart and Nick. Hi there, Dave. Hello everybody. Yes, and welcome back to our uh, regular extra edition of the Jodcast. We hope you didn't miss us too much last month, but we hopefully will be providing the extra editions from now on. So coming up on this edition, we have the second part of that interview with Sir Bernard Lovell. And we have Ask an Astronomer with Tim and Nick. But first of all, Dave, I think we should say thank you to listeners who sent us feedback in the past Absolutely, two weeks. Yeah. And on iTunes, we have R underscore, who gave us five stars, telling us that we were world-class broadcasting at its best. Thank you very much to you, R underscore. Yeah, guarantees you getting mentioned on the Jodcast. That's right. Oh, yes. <laughs> we like those sort of reviews, don't we? <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, so, yes, give us a five-star review, and we will mention you on the Jodcast. And we also had some feedback via the website. Yeah, Jay Manifold said, top-quality podcasting. Mm-hmm. saying excellent stuff and their only suggestion would be to carry on doing whatever we think works well uh, so we certainly shall yeah although we still appreciate if anyone tells us what would make things work better for them absolutely any kind of review any kind of feedback is gratefully appreciated so please do keep sending us your comments and reviews um, um, if you do have an iTunes account do please review us on iTunes because we do want to improve our rating and get more people listening to the Jodcast every month and polite spelling corrections for the website are also greatly appreciated. Yes, if you notice any mistakes on our website, do please drop us a line and we'll get them changed immediately. It's all my fault, I... Yeah. Never heard of spell oh. checkers, have you? No. no. <laughs> oh, one last thing. Hi to Peter Wilkinson's neighbour who regularly listens to us. Thanks for listening and hope you're enjoying the Jodcast this month. <laughs> and we also must say thank you to Christopher Arundel, who has also left us some... Uh, some feedback via the website at www.jodcast.net. One thing that Christopher Arundel said was that some years ago he was living in Stoke-on-Trent and went to a talk given by Sir Bernard Lovell about the setting up of Jodrell Bank Observatory. Now, in the September issue, we brought you part one of our three-part interview that Tim O'Brien made with Sir Bernard. And part two that we are putting forward to you today is the story from World War II through to just before Sputnik, which we'll be bringing you in the October issue. So here is part two of the live interview done by Tim O'Brien with Sir Bernard Lovell. And at the end of the war, I mean, you came back to Manchester University, didn't you? What, what brought you from Manchester to, to this place, to, to Jodrell Bank? Well, I, um, I had been involved with entirely different things during the war. And... Uh, I 
was not it was not sure what I would do because they wanted me to stay in the research establishment and I was offered jobs elsewhere but Blackett then I kept in close touch with Blackett during the war um, and he had at the end of the war became the director of naval operational research in the Navy, in the Admiralty and uh, he, he told me he was returning to Manchester well, well, well I knew that I just wanted to come and work with Blackett again mm-hmm. so that, that's how I came back to Manchester I, I, I Incidentally, not that it mattered in those days, but at half the salary I was getting in <laughs> in the war machine. I mean, you, you were back in the centre of Manchester, presumably, then, were you? Did you? How did, oh. you, how did you end up here? Oh well, I, 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 I went I went back to the university to the lab I was working in six years earlier, and um, there was my cloud chamber covered with a dust sheet. <laughs> So I ripped off the dust sheet and started trying to get the cloud chamber working again. And um, I wanted a screwdriver. So I went to the lab steward and said, um, uh, um, please, can I have a screwdriver? And he said, well, we don't have any money to buy a screwdriver. <laughs> and a few weeks earlier, you know, if I, I could pick up the telephone and say, look here, I want, I want six Lancaster bombers. <laughs> so, Anyhow, I was, I was just—I was just young enough to, to survive that, you know, quite, quite desperate recollection. Mm-hmm. Well, after a couple of days, um, Blackett suddenly appeared, and he said, "Whatever you're doing here," I said, "I'm trying to get this thing to work again, but it's quite difficult." And he said, "Oh, I thought you were going to try a new technique for studying these high-energy particles," and. Um, so I put the cover over the tower chamber again and went into the library and found some notes and a paper that Blackett and I had written about this possibility of using what, what I might call radar to study uh, these very high-energy particles. I, first of all, thought of the possibility of using one of the giant chain home stations, um, but th- th- that was, they weren't on the right frequency. Now, during the war, I'd been working on something entirely different, on um, on um, a very high frequency or centimeter radar, and um, the calculations showed that I wanted a fairly long wavelength to study the, these particles, and I had I, I knew a person called J. S. Hay, who was uh, working at uh, West Byfleet with the with the Army Operational Research Group, and. Um, I said, look, could I borrow some of your four-meter radar equipment? And he said, yes, of course. Uh, you know, th- th- it was all being thrown away mm-hmm. in those days. And um, I-, I had been released in the, in the summer of 1945 and I had returned to Manchester at about, at about the total end of the war. And so Hay um, sent up three trailers of radar equipment which had been used in the defense of London against the ACAC guns. They consisted of a receiver cabin, a, a hefty transmitter in another cabin, and a diesel generator to generate the power. 
So with the help of the army who brought it up, I, I erected this in the um, university premises to the consternation, I might say, everybody in the university. They'd never, they'd never seen any, any heavy, any big scientific equipment before. Um, and um, it was hopeless. The, uh, the, the, the cathode ray tube was submerged in interference. Um, believe it or not, in those days, electric trams were running along Oxford Road and moreover they were direct current mm -hmm. amazing to think of now and naturally they generate enormous sparks so um, Black had suggested that I try to find if the university had any grounds outside of Manchester and he pointed out a man called Sanson in the staff room who um, well first of all he sent me to High Lee well, High Lee was hopeless because there were already high voltage lines running across it, and I, I went there on a, on a wet day, and it was a sizzle of the sparks. And I returned immediately, and it was then that I was directed to this man Sanson, who was a botanist, and it turned out that he was responsible for a place called Jodrell Bank, where the University uh, Botanic Department had about ten acres of land on which they had planted a lot of trees and so on, and a piece of good luck. Sanson seemed to be the only man in the university who was interested in, in this massive radar equipment I brought back, and, and he turned out, the, when he found out that I was very interested in the shrubs and trees he planted here, that cemented a very close agreement between us. So I had permission to bring the, this radar equipment to Brodjondra Bank, for two weeks only, in December, mid-December of 1945, and I was alone. The army left me, they put up the equipment, I was alone. And um, the I had to get power. Uh, well, I couldn't turn the handle of the diesel generator, and when I eventually turned it, it wouldn't spark. And I discovered that the local farmer knew all about engines, a man called Moston. Mm -hmm. So... He, he helped me dismantle the thing and found out that the fuel pipes were blocked with ice. And um, so we started up the generator, and that's how we generated power. Well, I soon got echoes, but there were too many of them. And um, they obviously weren't from the high-energy cosmic ray showers, so there were too many echoes. And so I consulted Hay, who sent me a very secret document. He had been given the job of... Um, trying to detect the V-2 rockets, which were then being, um, which then harassing London. And he, um, it turned out that he was giving a lot of warnings of the approach of V-2 rockets when none arrived. And we knew from agents, and he knew from agents that none had been erected. And it turned out that he himself had then, because of this, had looked into the literature. And he'd found out that... Um, there were two American scientists, Schaefer and Goodall, who before the war had also observed echoes and had suggested that they might be due to, um, to meteor trails, ionized meteor, meteors coming into the upper atmosphere, burning up and leaving an ionized trail. So that's how I started on the radar observation of meteors at John Bank. Now... <laughs> Why wasn't I called back after two weeks? <laughs> you see, the Vice Chancellor, he, he, Lord Stafford, he, he ruled that... Um, well, first of all, he, 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 he did not think, quite reasonably, that those of us who had been at war, been at war for, for six years dealing with 
you know, massive equipment, but would ever be able to come back to a university and teach and do research. A very, very reasonable, very, very, a very reasonable doubt, if I might say so. Um, well, he, so he ruled that, yes, I could take this equipment to Java, but only for two weeks, and then I must return and, to the university campus and get on with my appointment there. Well, there, then another of these fortunate incidents happened. Uh, they forgot that I was in Java. <laughs> The, the, the reason, the, 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 at least the reason Blackett forgot I was at Jodrell was that he had become, he, he had been a member of the very distinguished team of scientists who were to advise the cabinet or advise the prime minister, who was then Atlas government, about uh, British um, participation or development uh, into atomic bombs and so on. Well, of course, uh, Cockcroft and there's, um, they sent in a positive report to the inner cabinet. On the contrary, Blackett uh, sent in a, a minority report arguing that the country could not afford to do this and various political reasons for not doing so. Um, the, the, I learned later on when I read the two books by Margaret Gowing on the history of atomic energy and development in Great Britain, the story then of how the Prime Minister and the Chiefs of Staff just scrawled across Blackett's report. Uh, this man may be a distinguished science, he knows nothing about military matters, you see. And he'd just been awarded the, the uh, Legion of Honor or something in, in America for, for, for advising them on military tactics. Uh, and Blackett became naturally very angry, and he proceeded to write his... Um, famous book on, on the um, military and political consequences of atomic energy uh, which, um, in, in which he, he contradicted all that Great Britain was doing and all that America was doing and uh, he, he was completely out on a limb and he was forbidden to, um, to go to America and on one occasion he force landed there on the way to Canada and was in fact imprisoned for a night or two um, so naturally, he, he couldn't, um, he, he completely forgotten about a young man called Lowell, uh, who, who he'd last seen, <laughs> well, I don't think he'd ever been to Jodrell Bank in those days. So by the end of that story, if I could just complete it, is by the time uh, Black had regained his composure and looked around his staff and thought, well, incredible, I saw they had a fellow called Lowell here, where is he? <laughs> And he, then he came out to Jodrell, and, um, and, and by that time we were getting some quite interesting results. And mm -hmm. one thing you know, Black was fascinated about everything to do with the universe. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I'm still here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So what, what led you to build this? I mean, this giant telescope is out here now. What, what was it that sort of eventually led you to construct oh, this? The, the, the primarily... Um, I discovered that um, I had uh, omitted in a, a paper I'd written with Blackett, I had omitted a, a figure of what's called the damping effect of the, which seriously affected the um, amount of the reflection one got from meter from, from the cosmic ray energy which I was looking for. 
Well, we were at the limits of what we could do by getting more powerful transmitter. I, I, I needed a thousand times more sensitivity than I had with this radar. And the only way to get it was to build a big aerial. Mm. Well, I, I then had, I had one or two people working for me then, including uh, John Clegg, who had been, uh, not, not in my group during the war, but um, he had been in TRE, and he was an expert on aerials. And we started to build um, a, a very big broadside array with a lot of scaffolding tubes. And um, then we really had to give up. We, 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 we couldn't, we got to a height where, where we felt it was too dangerous to go any further. And then he had the brilliant idea of, of building a paraboloid. And so we built... Um, I'm afraid it's no longer existing. The Mark II telescope is where it was. Uh, we built out of scaffolding poles <coughs> and wire a what was what turned out to be the biggest radio telescope ever built. Mm -hmm. It was 218 feet in diameter, and the focus was uh, 126 feet above the ground on, on a steel pole. Mm -hmm. Now, how did I get the steel pole? <laughs> Well, the, the answer again is that one day Blackett brought um, a member of the Department of Scientific Industrial Research uh, to see what was going on at Jodrell. And uh, this man, and he said, well, what are you doing? And I told him, and I said, well, well, I want some money to buy a steel pole. And he said, well, look here, this is exactly what my department would like to help with. So he, I got a thousand pounds to buy the steel pole. Now that turned out to be important in another way. Um, and that's how we started here. Now I, I, I'm talking about now about 1948, 1949. I did um, th that. We called it a transit telescope because the beam could we, we could divert the beam a few degrees by tilting the mast. Otherwise, it just swept quite a narrow beam uh, as the Earth rotated. It swept quite a narrow beam across the sky. Um, Unfortunately, you know, the the one of the very important nebulae uh, was on the edge of the beam, which turned out to be very vital at a different stage. I uh, I did um, I, I did try that transmitter as a radar instrument, mm -hmm. uh, but soon gave up because we were then becoming absolutely fascinated by uh, the this entirely new. New, new, new science was well, not a science then of of, cosmi of, uh, of, uh, of cosmic radio emission. Mm. You see, not cosmic rays, the real particles. Mm. The, the simultaneity of the name is perhaps rather unfortunate, but nevertheless, we now call the the, the, the radio emission from space discovered mm. by Gansky. Um, the name radio astronomy was not then known, mm. but. Um, um, it's reported, I think, in fact, that I, I first used the name in, in, in an article I wrote for the Manchester Guardian, but mm -hmm. and someone said that Palsy had also used it in Australia. So that's how we began the science of radio astronomy, and uh, everything was new. Almost nothing was known about it then, apart from the, the results of Jansky and Raber. Uh, it was not at all. It was not known, for example, that the radio emissions came from outside the, the local Milky Way system, um, and that is how I had the idea of of the telescope mm. 
which is outside now, for two reasons. One was to develop this new study of radio astronomy, but, and the other important one was to, was to continue the investigation of the uh, high-energy cosmic rays. Mm -hmm. I, I must say, I, about a year ago, I attended a, a lecture here by a um, scientist who, who was doing the same thing, studying in a different technique, and the problem is still unsolved. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it's too late to return to it now, but um, um, because it, there's too much interference. But there, there is a, a really a vital problem uh, which is unsolved, and that is where do these uh, cosmic rays of the very highest energy, um, where are they generated in the universe? Mm -hmm. Anyhow, that's by the way. I, I, I did have a, a made me a pause for thought then mm -hmm. that perhaps I had been rather foolish not to pursue that study when the it was very little radio interference and I could have used this telescope mm -hmm. on the appropriate frequencies for studying that. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, the the other subject of radio astronomy um, became um, so fascinating and important. That's how we. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, so was, was I then began to achieve a, a few research students, and um, including, fortunately, Henry Brown, who, who became a very vital, and, and he and Hazard, um, with, with the transit telescope, discovered uh, the radio emission from the Andromeda Nebula, M31. Mm -hmm. And this was the first real proof that the radio, the radio emission um, was generated in, in ex, extragalactic mm -hmm. systems and not only in the Milky Way. Mm. So that was the beginning. Mm. And was it an easy task building this telescope then? <laughs> I thought... <laughs> the short answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> I can elaborate that by saying that I... I had, a year earlier, been putting a, enormous aerials... Uh, six-foot rotating paraboloids underneath the Lancaster bomber and flying it at 20 or 30,000 feet. And it seemed to me that if one could do that, it would be fairly easy, easy to build a thing like this on the ground. But, you know, that was a tremendous error of judgment. I, um, I, th I think in the archives you'll find a number of letters I wrote to various firms I'd been engaged with during the war. Um, and they said what I was proposing was impossible or that um, they were too busy on work of national importance. Well, as a matter of fact, it's only in recent years that I've realized that it almost was impossible uh, to, to build that telescope at that time. Now, I um, had contacts with... Um, with, with Grubb Parsons, who were big telescope builders, and, and in charge of that was Dr. Sisson. And um, I went to see him, and he came here, and he said, oh, yes, well, we, we can't possibly build that telescope, but we could build the, um, the equipment to drive it for you. Then I consulted a man called Roberts. Now, Roberts had been the, the man from a firm called Kruber and Scrutton, who, for, for whom we had bought the, the still tube for the 218-foot transit telescope. And I said to Roberts, uh, is your firm interested in tackling the, building this, what became the telescope? And uh, he, he returned to his firm, 
and uh, consultant has said he very much regretted they didn't feel they could tackle this job. But they did know a consult. They did know a consulting engineer, who um, who who might be interested in it. And so, in a day in September of 1949, that is how I met uh, Charles' husband. And um, we we remember standing under the transit telescope, and he asked me what I wanted. And I said, "Well, I want him an instrument." at least as big as this but probably slightly bigger which which is not fixed but which which I can steer to any part of the sky and uh, his reply was quite historic he said um, uh, I said but but I'm told it's impossible and he he said uh, he said well I said it's not impossible his words were about as difficult as throwing a swing bridge over the Thames at Westminster. <laughs> now it turned out I learned later that he was he had become a famous builder of bridges. Mm-hmm. In fact, it was he who was summoned to um, rebuild the bridge over the Menai Straits. Mm-hmm. When, and in fact, if you say that you see the record that it was built and redesigned by husband. So that's how I became associated with husband, and uh, which after five or six tortuous years led to the event which we're celebrating now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, mm-hmm. the, the 50 years when we first mm. used it to... Before it was finished, incidentally, mm. as you know. So what, what, what was it like that year in 1957? What were the, what were the events that happened that you, you remember most? Oh, well, I, I'd, I'd, I'd incurred an enormous debt. In, in 1957... Uh, the beginning of this year, you know, all these festivities you've so kindly arranged—they sound marvellous, but they, they, it was not—it was not a marvellous year. Mm. Uh, the telescope was in in, in very serious debt, I mean, partly my fault, um, but not entirely. And um, in in, in 19, 1957, I had overspent by. What was then two hundred fifty thousand pounds. Now to get that into modern coinage, multiply by twenty, and you get two or, th- two or three million. You see. So um, I remember endless meetings, um, and um, the p- people who helped finance the telescope, the Department of Scientific Research. They didn't have enough money in, in the beginning when I said it would cost £50,000. And it was Lockspicer, who was the head of the DSR, said, look here, young man, um, I'll give you £3,000. You go away and find out how much it really will cost. <laughs> well, even then, the figure we got was uh, was £150,000, £200,000, which was a lot of money in those days. Um, I remember on one occasion when... Before we had, I had this enormous debt. There was a committee inquiry came here, and the finance, finance officer from the government department of scientific and industrial research. The telescope uh, was up to the top of the trunnions. There was no no bowl at all. And uh, they discussed how I'd managed to overspend all this amount of money, and you know things were pretty gloomy. They had no more money and all that sort of thing, and. Um, and I turned to him, his name was Jolliffe, and I said, uh, what are you going to do? And he looked at me, you know, I thought he said, well, we'll just stop the whole thing. Mm. 
And he looked out of the window, and all that he said, well, look, Lovell, the strength of your position is that huge mass of steel out there. You see? And so they went on with it. Mm -hmm. Now, at the beginning of 1957, faced with this enormous debt, and the reason for enormous debt, you can ask me about that if you want to, and I will tell you, but um, the, the, there was a committee of inquiry uh, in the university, and... Um, in the face of this debt, the university themselves agreed to finance the completion of the painting of the plating of the bell. Act of faith. Mm -hmm. I've, I've never forgotten it. I mean, they they, they would have had every, every reason for for saying go. You know, you 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 you're ruining the university. Mm -hmm. um, but they didn't. They they had faith, fortunately. And so there we are. So go on then, explain why you overran in cost. <laughs> there, there were, there was one early on, a, a scientific reason. The original design had a, a, a an open mesh of about four inches, and that would have been all right for the wavelength of which I had proposed to work in those days. I mean, the wavelength in which people work nowadays, there were no means, you know, it was unheard of in those days. And there was certainly no evidence that any radio emissions existed in, in the very high frequency band. And then um, in the early 1950s, uh, there's this um, remarkable discovery predicted by van der Haast in Holland uh, that neutral hydrogen in the universe will generate radio emissions on a wavelength of 21 centimeters. So I realized then that, um, you know, this would become extremely important in radio astronomical research. So I then redesigned the bowl to um, put in a much smaller mesh and stiffen the central 100-foot region so we could use it on, on this very, high, very short wavelength, high frequency. Then two more things happened. Um, in 1956, against my, against my will, I, I, when I left the war, I, I simply wanted to do, do research, but I was not allowed to do that. I, the reason I wasn't very, it was very odd that um, Blackett had told me that if I wanted to build this telescope, I must persuade everybody in the country knew anything about it or all the astronomers that it was a good thing and particularly the astronomer, Astronomers Royal it was Sir Harold Spencer Jones at Greenwich and Greaves in, in Edinburgh and so I, I I remember you know Sir Harold Spencer Jones he, he, he stayed with us and, and he was a very nice fellow and he said oh how very interesting and he, support, he supported us in the famous committee in Edinburgh and decided to carry on with it he was prominent that was fine. But sh shortly afterwards, I had a letter from him. Said, and I remember it well. Saying, Dear Lowell, um, uh, I am the uh, chairman of um, a, a Ministry of Defence Committee on, on Navigation. And we urgently need your help. What do you know? He was helping me. I had to go. And so one thing led to another. And... Um, I've only recently come across the files, actually, in getting into the John Ryden's library. Mm -hmm. 
and I then on began to be even even when this telescope was being built, I was on the Aeronautical Research Council, the Air Warfare Committee, and so on. Well, on one day, a man called Coburn, who was then the scientific advisor to the Ministry of Aviation, and I'd known very well during the war. He hadn't been in my group, but he had a separate group on countermeasures. And he said, I urgently need to see you. He then had an office, which was quite close to the House of Parliament. I remember looking out of his window and, and seeing the, the Big Ben on the clock. And, and what he was telling me was so alarming that I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm going to miss my train. But, but uh, I did. But there, there again, and his message was that um, the Soviets... <clears throat> They had, they had information the Soviets were now advanced in the development of ballistic missiles and uh, they had no means of detecting them. And um, if I would agree to, they thought that they knew about the telescope and thought that if I made it work on a higher frequency um, for which they would pay, uh, it would be helpful. Another thing happened after the war, which you might want to ask about, but th that was what happened. And um, so we modified the telescope and put, put the plate on instead of the mesh. That would have been fine, except um, the, the Treasury, or someone in the Treasury, uh, noticed that two separate government departments were financing the same project, which was absolutely forbidden. <laughs> and so we never got the money from the Ministry of Aviation. But that was not the only thing. I'd been, at that time, I'm now talking about 1956, I'd, I'd been lecturing at the National Physical Laboratory, and uh, naturally I talked about the telescope. And uh, after the lecture, a man called Saxton came to me and said, uh, very interesting level, he said, have you ever heard of the, of the Tacoma Bridge disaster? And I said, no. Uh, the T Tacoma Bridge disaster over Washington State, the bridge had been built uh, to stand um, all reasonable wind pressures, and many of you may have seen this astonishing film in which at a, quite a low wind speed, gusting, the bridge began to twist, and, and it broke in the middle. And uh, he said, uh, and I said, oh, well, we're all right. We, we've designed the telescope to withstand wind speeds of 80 mph. He said, yeah, but have you, have you designed it to withstand wind speeds of 20 or 30, which are fluctuating? So I reported this to husband, who again knew nothing about the Tacoma Bridge disaster. So he built um, a, a, a tenth, one-tenth, scale model of the telescope and he simulated the gun racks which rotate the elevation with springs now we put this in the low low speed wind tunnel at MPL and it was fine up to very high wind speeds as soon as we reduced the wind speed and put in flush up ah, shattered you see? so then how, how to stop this this we, as you may know the, the elevation is um, operated by electromotors driving into the uh, 28 uh, feet internal diameter racks from the from the Royal Sovereign and I think it's Revenge battleships and um, this would have, have wrecked, wrecked, wrecked the teeth 
So we had to put in what became a big wheel, not the one that's there now, but what's called a stabilizer girder. Uh, this operated on, um, on very large hydraulic wheels mounted on the diametrical girder of the telescope. And uh, th that is how I ended up with such an enormous debt. <laughs> but you see, it, it sounds awful, and it was, because you, you might say, well, why wasn't there a committee to, to uh, stop me doing these things? Well, the trouble was that nobody, nobody knew what, what I was doing. <laughs> they, 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 they did then put up a site committee uh, um, 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 site committee under under Sir Charles Reynolds, who was the chain man, and do you know the only thing that I ever remember that committee discussing was how to get rid of the water in the bowl. <laughs> you see, the, it's, e it's easy now, Tim, you know, to forget that everything was so new in those days. Mm. Yeah. So there we are, stopping just at the beginning of October. 1957, ready for the October issue, and the third part of that interview coming up soon. So some fascinating reminiscences there from Sir Bernard Lovell. It's, it's fantastic to hear him speak about his early times setting up Jodrell Bank Observatory. I particularly like um, I particularly like the way he got forgotten about um, by the University <laughs> yeah, of Manchester. Wouldn't that be great? Sort of, you know, left in the job, keep on getting paid and then forgotten about. It sounds fantastic. It sounds perfect to me. Now, Tim O'Brien is not over and done with, because... He's been answering your questions that Nick's put to him in Ask an Astronomer. Our first question comes from Che Knight. Is the nearby electric railway noticeable to the telescope? And I imagine he's talking about all the telescopes at uh, Jodrell Bank, but presumably mainly the big Lovell telescope. Is the nearby electric railway noticeable to the telescope, or do you just happen not to look that close to the horizon, or are we able to tune out the effect? Mm. Yeah, so I mean, for those of us uh, who haven't uh, been to Jodrell, there is, uh, right next to the big Lovell telescope, there is a railway line um, that runs past it. It's probably only about 100 metres or so away from the telescope. It's, it's pretty it's pretty mm. close. You can certainly hear trains going past. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, it's in a little cutting, so it is a bit, it is quite low down, as, as the as the listener was, was implying there. Um, but yeah, you're right. It was. He's, he's right that it was a, that it was a real worry when it was first proposed that this be electrified. You know, sort of uh, nearly 50 years ago. 50 years ago or so. Uh, of course, the only reason Jodrell Bank is where it is is because of the interference in Manchester, and that yes. was from electric trams. And the problem is, is basically sparking. So when you get an electric spark. Uh, that generates a huge slew of radio waves right the way across the spectrum. This was, funnily enough, this was the original way that radio waves were discovered in the first place, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. It was Hertz, who we named the frequency scale after it in 1888, I believe. I can be corrected, I'm sure. But, uh, but yeah, it was an electric spark in the lab that showed sort of some sort of action at a distance or something, you know, when a meter moved across the other side of the lab when he, mm. when he set off a spark. So, yeah, it would have been a real, uh, a real worry when that... It was a real worry when it was proposed that that section of line be electrified. And the problem problem was um, because th these things called pantographs, they're the, they're the, they're the sort of uh, spring-loaded thing that sits on the top of an electrified train and it presses up against the, the overhead cable because the, the, the electric power in this case is coming through overhead cables. What happens is as the train goes along, um, these things would sort of occasionally spring off as it sort of bumped along. They would lose contact with the overhead cable and then you get this arc, you get this spark across um, and in fact, um, 
you know if you can remember back many years you'd see you'd see these sparks sort of lighting up lighting up the night sky mm. um from from railway lines um and that would have been producing huge amounts of radio stream. so in fact the solution was there was a lot of conversation between the astronomers at Jodrell and the and the railway company and they actually redesigned the system on that section of track to cope with it uh, and I believe what they did um, was to reduce the height of the cables, so bring the cables down closer to the carriage, which increases the pressure on this spring-loaded pantograph thing. Right, reduces, so it's less likely for them, yeah, than them to separate. Under, yeah, reduce, re- reduces the chance that they, they disconnect basically. And then I think, and, and which sorted the problem initially. And then I believe that the uh, what's happened since is that the whole the whole way in which that's done has been. Redesigned, so in fact, it's it's a much more less likely thing generally. So even you know nationwide, the, the, you don't see that sort of arcing anymore, really, mm. any, unlike you you used to do. So in fact, it's a problem that's largely largely gone away. And the other interesting thing about it, just just to add something to that, is that in fact the the reason Jodrell Bank exists at all is is because of Sir Bernard Lovell, of course. Uh, and the reason he's interested in science, for those of you who listened to the Jodcast last month and listened to the interview I did with him a few months ago, um, he was inspired to become a scientist by uh, visiting a public lecture at Bristol University on the electric spark. Mm. So it was basically going into this lecture and sort of seeing these flashes of light and smelling the spark as well, all that sort of, you know, all that visceral stuff, you know, um, that, that inspired him to get into science in the first place. So. And uh, these sparks, these massive arcs were uh, a window into a whole new way of looking at the universe, which is yeah, a little... Yeah, which he opened up, yeah. Next question is from Stephen Wheatley uh, about comets. Whenever you look at a comet, it's a fuzzball outgassing and spitting out bits in nearly all directions. Perhaps this happens when comets get too close to the sun, but how close is too close? So that's the first question, how close is too close? And the next question is, how far out does a comet have to be to accrete anything? Is there much material that far out to accrete? Mm. Right, okay, well, um, I think there's, uh, perhaps we should start by just just reminding ourselves what comets are, Mm. Uh, and I think it starts to help answer the question a little bit, actually. I mean, they're basically... Sort of the classic phrase is a dirty snowball. Dirty snowball, yeah. yeah. So they're basically made up of ices and um, bits of dust and a bit of rocky material as well, sort of mi- mixed up. Um, and actually, they they um, they were they probably formed very early on in the formation of the solar system. So they formed during that whole phase when the dust was sort of coagulating, sort of accreting together. Um, so Stephen uses this phrase accretion. So this idea of things sort of sticking to each other basically this sort of things being gravitationally pulled onto something else is often what we talk mm. about when we talk about accretion so there's this whole process of bits being stuck together to make bigger bits um and and you know that 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 whole theory has had a lot of impetus recently because of the discovery of planets going around other stars of course because we've had to sort of revise our opinions of how that occurs now that we've got all these other examples of planetary systems to compare the predictions of the theories to but basically in that in that story um, these things called planetismals form these very fairly small sort of rocky icy objects whose composition might vary as a function of their position from the the distance from the from the central star and it's thought that comets really formed at that stage that these sort of basic building blocks of the of the solar system mm. and what we what we think um, happened was that uh, that many of these things would have been ejected from the inner solar system from the sort of planetary region of the solar system. How they get ejected? They get flung out how? Yeah, gravitational interactions, basically. So as the bigger bigger objects formed, as the bigger planets start to form, then basically close encounters with those 
objects can either result in, you know, you could find that you accrete one of these objects, or in fact, just, you know, as, as we do with spacecraft and we're sending them out to other parts of the solar system, we use this sort of uh, slingshot effect where mm. you can come close and sort of use the, you know, borrow a bit of energy from that orbit and sort of whiz yourself out to, to different parts of the, the solar system. That could happen with the comets where they basically get um, ejected out into very large orbits. Um, now, in fact, we think that that's what populated something called the Oort cloud, right. uh, named after Jan Oort, which is basically thought to be a, a roughly sort of spherical distribution of many comets, maybe you know, maybe a million million comets, something like that, out to very large distances from the sun. In fact, you know, half the distance to the nearest star, mm. roughly. So it's sort That's of a in, remarkably long way away. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, and, and I think it's interesting to still be you know part of yeah, the solar system yeah, essentially. Yeah, I mean, it's basically to the point at which otherwise they'd not be gravitationally bound to the sun, I suppose. And mm. I suppose that's the sort of distances you get to. It's interesting. Th- I always imagine it's interesting to think these things that you think of stars, these point-like things going around the galaxy. But in fact, if the you know if each of them has this big spherical cloud of yes. comets that extends, you know, they're more like bubbles of yeah, they're sort of like bubbles of stuff. You know, there's n- there's not a huge amount of mass in in there in total when you add it all up. But uh, but you know, there's many of these individual objects, and they're sort of sitting out there. And of course, as you can imagine. As, as the sun orbits the, the Milky Way, it passes by, the stars have got different velocities, different paths of the, of the motion. They come near to another star, that can disturb the orbits in, in, of comets in the, in the Oort cloud and cause them to be perturbed so that they basically fall in towards the sun. Mm. Um, and as they come in close to the sun, then you get this effect that, that Stephen refers to, which is this outgassing effect where you, you warm up this icy object and it starts to build up this so-called coma this this cloud of uh, gaseous material around the comet and then the solar wind itself sort of drives away this coma to form the long tail now that sort of typically you know th- these things become visible typically when the comet's within you know a few AU or so of the uh, of the sun but you do see you know you do you're right you do see these sort of fuzzy halos you know at larger distances than that so basically it's a sort of continuous process really that as it comes close to the sun you can start to start to form these coma um now in terms of whether it, whether you get any accretion well um there's a given that these comets basically formed at the origin you know a long time ago early early on in the solar system you're not really forming them anymore i mean these things are sort of there largely what's happening is they're dying i right. think is the, so, it, so if you get a comet that gets brought into the inner region of the solar system and maybe it goes into some sort of relatively short period orbit say like Halley's Comet's orbit 76 years um, it's really really only going to take uh, maybe a few hundred or so it depends on the comet uh, orbits for it to sort of lose all its material mm. and basically die yeah, so it's losing more of its losing material than it, it will ever accrete going yeah out that's the... right yeah so so you know they're not they're not going to go but it's not going back out again and re-accreting stuff and regenerating itself for its next pass through it's basically just gradually losing more and more mm. stuff I guess if something got way, you know, if it went way back out into the Oort cloud, then maybe there's still some stuff lying around out there that you might get a bit of accretion going on. But those are typically not not the comets that would, you know that people would be would be familiar with. I mean, the other the other region of of these sorts of objects is called the Kuiper Belt, which is basically a sort of more disk-like distribution. So where the Oort cloud is a spherical thing. Um, out to very large distances, like half the way to the nearest star, sort of inside that, um, and sort of out beyond the orbit of, of Neptune lies this sort of disc-like population of of, of, of comets and similar icy, rocky, icy objects like like the new the new uh, dwarf planets that have recently been discovered. 
um, those things are in the Kuiper Belt. They probably got formed in situ then at the origin of the solar system, and they've never, you know, they've never gone anywhere. They've not. That's why they're in a disk. Mm. They've not been ejected anywhere like the Oort clouds. They're unreasonably stable orbits. Then. Yeah, yeah. So um, you know, you don't you don't get that same uh, uh, that same thing going on with the outgassing process and so on for the for the standard comets. And how close can a comet get to the sun before it gets deleted? Well, the inter- I mean, the interesting thing is that uh, I mean, one of the I, I used to occasionally give talks about the sun and I'd, and I'd often preface showing one particular movie as being the most exciting astronomical movie I'd ever seen and uh, it's, it's, <laughs> what was that and it was very sad <laughs> it was uh, it was actually the uh, it was from Soho uh, which is one of these have you seen there's a, there's a coronagraph on mm-hmm. Soho um, which basically is where you put this sort of uh, sometimes a finger of metal or something some basically some physical object that blocks the light from the bright sun so that you don't overexpose your image on the camera and you can look at stuff around the sun near the sun and it's used to look at the corona of the sun the outer atmosphere of the sun but there's a great uh, there's several examples of this but there's a great movie um, which shows um, a coronal mass ejection so you know when basically one of these magnetic flare loops breaks open and you get this loads of stuff out rushing from yeah. the sun in what looks like a huge explosion which is a great movie on this on this soho uh on on this soho movie but what happens just before it is two comets sort of arrive stage right oh. and you can see their tails yeah. you know the bright nucleus and you can see the tails sort of arcing away from the sun and they sort of come in from the right and they orbit around the sun a bit and then they disappear behind the behind the blocking disc of the chronograph and never come, never out, come again. out again <laughs> so, so basically you know the, the sun is basically hoovering up yeah. comets quite 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 regularly in yes. fact so yeah so that's what happens to quite a lot of comets that come near the sun is they disappear straight into it Very good. okay next question is from mark godfrey and he writes i understand that general relativity says that gravity happens because a large mass distorts space time but how does that make things move right okay there's a a lot of in, a lot of information buried in that question, but maybe we can maybe we can think about it in terms of that. There's a there's a classic uh, a classic model, isn't there, that mm-hmm. uh, that people might have seen, where you've got uh, you take something like a, a rubber sheet um, and you put a heavy ball or something in the middle of it, and that because of the gravity of the Earth, of course, yeah. in this model, that that heavy ball is is sort of pulled downwards, and the seat the sheet um, sags. So you end up with this sort of funnel-like shape, and then what we've got to do is sort of think: how does that, how does that represent? How is that an analogy for, for curved space-time? Mm. Well, what it would be is that the head, the heavy ball, sort of represents, say, the sun or something, um, and that's basically a, a source of gravity. And then what it does is it distorts space-time around it, curved space-time. That was Einstein's sort of geometrical interpretation of gravity the stretchy there's the stretched rubber sheet yeah yeah and i think the way the way to think about it is to think about you know our our interpretation of gravity the way in which we the way in which we interact with it or the way in which we observe it is to sort of feel it as a force Mm. um so if we think about even just you know uh, chucking you know holding a ball or something in your hand and letting go of it if i was to do that here now then that ball would drop sort of towards the center of the earth because of that force of gravity the way in which you know as physicists we often think about those things if you think about something called a potential a gravitational potential the simple way of thinking about that word is probably to think about it as a sort of potential for movement mm. so if i was holding this ball in my hand 
there's some potential for it to move and if I allow it to, if I let go of it, because actually at the, obviously at the beginning I'm holding it up, yes. I'm, I'm resisting that potential. If I let go of it, then the potential causes it to fall, that movement becomes real. Uh, and what's happening is the ball's moving in what's called a gradient of potential. For it to actually start moving, there's got to be a gradient in the potential. Um, and the way to think about it in terms of this sheet model is to think about, you know, um, then say a tabletop, put the ball on the tabletop, it wouldn't move. Mm. Okay, if I tip the tabletop, then it rolls to one side. That's like the gradient of the potential. If you think about the tabletop as being the, the, the value of this potential, if it was horizontal, it's got the same value everywhere. If we tip it, then you can get to this lower potential down to one side and the ball starts to move. So what's happening in this curved space time is you see this sheet as the sort of potential. What, what The fact that the sheet is tilted at an angle is what gives you the force that mm. acts on the ball. So the gradient of that potential gives you the force. Once you've got a force acting on anything, then the object's going to move. It's going to accelerate. It's going to have an acceleration, yeah. Mm. So you've got Newton's second law, for example, F equals MA forces, the product of mass and acceleration. So as soon as you've got a force, you get this acceleration and in a way the ball goes down the, down the gradient. Um, and in the case of this rubber sheet model of curved space-time, then in that case you happen to have a changing gradient actually um, because if you think about it, the gradient's less at the edges of the sheet mm. and it's steeper as you get towards the middle. It looks like an inverted funnel. Yeah. Well, not even an inverted funnel, it looks like a funnel. It looks like, <laughs> <laughs> looks like a funnel, that's right. So it's sort of like, it's sort of like a, um, what, what the interpretation of that then is, where would the force be biggest? Mm. It would be near the middle is where the gradient's steepest. We've observed that's how gravity behaves. Um, that the force is greater nearer the object because it's this inverse square law it goes down as the, the force goes down as the square of the distance away from the object and in that interpretation of a curved space time it's bigger near the object mm. so yeah if you had a if you had this thing if that was the sun and you sat a ball or a planet or something and if you were able to just place it in position uh, some distance from the sun it would accelerate towards the sun it would basically be rolling down that gradient down into the middle of that funnel um, in fact, of course, the, the planets aren't doing that. We're not all falling towards the sun, luckily. Um, we're orbiting around it. We're counteracting that by having this component, initial component of our motion that's side on, that's mm. sideways, and that allows us to go round and round, effect, roughly in circles, in ellipses, of course, uh, around and around and around this, yes. this funnel. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay, thanks Tim and Nick, and Tim will be answering more of your questions next month in the October Extra issue. Now, interestingly, trains, not too much of a problem for Jodrell Bank at the moment, but there have been other things causing problems for other mechanical objects. Up on Mars, Mars rovers have been subject to dust storms, so what is actually going on with them? Yes, it's a new excuse, isn't it, really, for virgin trains. We have dust on the solar panels as opposed to leaves on the line. Yeah, the <laughs> spirit and opportunity have been suffering a lot from dust. On Mars, they have large dust storms that can sometimes envelop the entire planet. And spirit and opportunity, the Mars rovers, have been trying to weather the storm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they had over 40 days in dust storm, which is quite a thick. A 40-day dust storm is, must be quite impressive. That's impressive, yeah. And presumably, uh, like I said, the, the, the dust sits and collects on the solar panels of the the two rovers where they derive their energy for uh, roving. So if they get covered up, the sunlight can't get to the solar cells, they can't recharge their batteries, and they they basically die, don't they? Yeah. But they've been up there for quite a while, though, haven't they? They have. Spirit's been there over 1,300 days now. 
and wow. opportunity just a little bit less because it arrived a little bit later. And it, they weren't designed to to last that long, though. No, the original specifications were ninety days. I think they're remarkable machines, uh, regardless of how long they're expected to to, to to run. I mean, having a machine operate remotely on a different planet for a thousand days, over a thousand days—that's a remarkable technological achievement. And uh, the information that they're being sent back is sending back is uh, spectacular. Opportunity is about to undergo something quite amazing, though. It's going into a crater on the. It is. Of Mars. It's already started, actually. Oh right, um, okay. It was a few days ago. It was just teetering over the edge and went down and came back out. It was doing a, a wheel slippage check. The rover would stop driving if the wheels were slipping by more than forty percent. Presumably, a hundred percent slipping means it's just just sliding down the hillside. Right. Um, so it presumably, down, it could it could it could slide down to this crater and then not be able to get out again, which would be a bit embarrassing. So now that it's in the crater, its first destination is a light-toned layer of exposed rock that's thought that might have evidence of interaction between the Martian atmosphere and the surface from millions of years ago. So they're going off to do some geology on that. Okay. Wonderful. And hopefully more news on that in our news bulletin in the October issue. But I'm afraid that brings this issue of the Judcast to an end. Thank you very much for listening, and do please download us. Next episode of the Jodcast. And, of and course, review us. And review us, yes, please review us. And do send us um, emails, feedback, any type. We accept letters, postcards, pigeon mail, whatever. We need to know how we're doing and what we can do better. So please do drop us a line and let us know what you think of the Jodcast. At the beginning of October, so it won't be on the October show, but it'll be on future shows, there's the Modern Radio Universe Conference being held in Manchester. Mm -hmm. And we will be haranguing and harassing as many astronomers that are coming to that as we can get hold of. It's celebrating 50 years of uh, radio astronomy, basically, isn't it? So it's a commemorative conference, and a lot of the big names in radio astronomy will be here in Manchester, and we will be asking them questions about their life and their research, so that should be quite a good time. And if you are coming to that particular conference, do let us know, or just come along and find us, and we'd be happy to interview you, especially if you're happy to see us. We'll be wearing our Jodcast t-shirts. Yes. So do please join us again, as we say, in October. Thanks to you guys, Nick and Stuart, and also to Tim, and you'll hear the rest of Sir Bernard's interview on the October issue. So until then, all the very best. We'll talk to you soon. Yep. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Before the start of the Jodcast, I asked you whether a wire stretching around the globe of just 10 metres longer than the circumference would be big enough to get a man under it. Well, actually, if you work out all of the maths, you find that you would actually have 1.6 metres of leeway. So you could get a flea, you could get a rabbit, you could get a short man under it. For more, for more wonderful and, and weird facts and information, listen to the Jodcast, especially the October Extra Edition, where we'll have another puzzle just like that.